fun one I think for me. This is one that I, I can tell you right now. I already know this is going to be difficult. Because um, there's no way I could do this all in one shot. So what I'm going to do here is, and I couldn't find any great. For the second part, I'll probably have some audio. But on this one, there was just really no audio that goes with just this first half of what I was going to talk about. What I'm going to go down is uh, the Cecil Hotel. Um, what brought this on, really, honestly, my wife was watching the new Netflix series talking about the other part that I'm going to talk about with the Cecil Hotel next week, which is Elisa Horn. Um, so if anyone's wanting to hear that, when I come back, I figure it's not next week, but my next midweek episode, so in two weeks, um, that's when I will talk about Elisa Horn. I wanted to, before I got to her drop, I want to talk about just everything else. This is one of those things that once I really started looking at this, originally I was just going to do Elisa Horn, but once I started looking at just the Cecil Hotel itself, um, the casting of it, there is so much that the Cecil Hotel has done and has been involved in and so much about this place that um, that's just fascinating, even without talking about Elisa Horn, which like I said, I will. We, we will talk about that in the next episode, but... I figured I can get almost a full episode just talking about the other parts of the history. The, the deaths, the suicides, um, the serial killers found at the Cecil Hotel. I have background with this amazing hotel that actually in 2017 was listed as you know a, a, a monument. It's, yeah, it, it has been listed as, where is it? I'm just even reading about this for some reason. It's a landmark. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. It's a landmark. It's a landmark that was 2017. Uh, the city of Los Angeles named it as a landmark. So it's a it's a historical building, uh, which it should be. I mean, it's been around forever. So it was actually built back in the 20s. Um, for those that don't know, it's not it's not new by any means. It was built back in the 20s, um, and it was supposed to be built as like a beautiful hotel. Um, it was 14 floors. And see, that's the thing. Is I, I think it's actually 15, but I can't. I couldn't find what you think would be easy to find. But just about every article I read either said 13, 15, or 19. So there seems to be some, some disputes on how many floors it really has. So it was built in the in the 20s. Um, I've seen also reports that it opened in 24. I've also seen reports that it opened in 27. So I've seen both, um, and I can't seem to find somewhere that identify exactly which one it is. Um, but like I said, it's a, it's a 14 floor or 15 or 19, whichever one, whichever article you're reading. Uh, but the one thing they all agree on is there are 700 guest rooms. Um, like I said, built in the 20s, open in either 24 or 27. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was opened in 27, built in 24, opened in 27. Because a lot of things that I read kept trying to say it was opened in 24, but then would also say that it was built in 24. So that it was starting to be built. And something that big isn't going to be built in a day. So it, I'm guessing it took a few years. So they built it up. It was originally, um, there, there's a huge, if you've never seen it, um, look it up. There's a huge picture of it. And on the side of it, it will say Hotel Cecil Low Daily Weekly Rates. And these proceed monthly weekly rates, but they're kind of like somewhat, you know, tweak it over to monthly and put daily. Um, but yeah, it's on 
Ben Simes, a huge billboard just painted on the side of the building with his hotels. Um, huge landmark in LA. I've seen it when I've been down there. I've driven by it. Um, it's not a very nice part of town. But when it was originally built, it wasn't supposed to be that way. So like I said, it was built in 24 by three hoteliers, uh, William Banks, Tanner, Charles L. Banks, and Robert H. Sheets, as a destination for business travelers and tourists. So designed by Lori Lester Smith in the Beaux-Arts style and constructed by WW Patton, the hotel cost $1.5 million to complete and boasted an opulent marble lobby with stained glass windows, potted palms, and wall of Africa statuary. The three hotel hoteliers invested about $10.5 million in the enterprise with the knowledge that several similar hotels had been established elsewhere, elsewhere downtown, but within five years of its opening, anyone since said it had not been profitable. And this is where everything went down. It, it seemed like it started off, it was supposed to be this grand venture, it was supposed to be amazing. Um, from everything I've seen and all the videos, if you ever get a chance, go watch some of the videos of people walking in there. The lobby, everything looks amazing. I mean, it's gorgeous with this beautiful, beautiful marble lobby, um, beautiful stained glass windows, beautiful statuary, you know, alabaster statuary, all this stuff. But then pretty much the depression hit, and it, it kind of did okay through the 40s, but then it basically became hotel sales had declined and the area nearby started to be known as Skid Row and basically became an increasingly populated transients. So at one time as many as 10,000 homeless people lived within a four mile radius around the hotel. So it's it's very interesting to think about. I mean that this hotel was built and then all of a sudden Skid Row just ended up basically forming around it. Um, which made a lot of things that we're going to talk about with a lot of the violence, a lot of the death, a lot of everything else that's associated with this hotel that a lot of people have issues because, you know, it, it starts to become an argument on whether the all the issues with the hotel are because of a very sinister, dark energy. If you believe that kind of thing, paranormal, all that kind of stuff, or is it really just because of, I mean, there's 10,000 homeless people living there at the time. That it's in the middle of Skid Row. And that's where a lot of the arguments are coming. I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot, and I've watched a lot of videos about this, and that seems to be where the big argument comes in, where a lot of people are like, oh, yes, it was a spark history. It sparked everything. It was false clouds I ever saw. Was that dark cloud supernormal? I mean, supernatural? Or... Was that dark cloud just the fact that it was right next to Skid Row? Where there's rampant, you know, uh, drug use, rampant, you know, everything else, all sorts of, you know, uh, homelessness, other things like that happening. The fact that once that started to happen, they basically lowered their rates down to a point that, you know, it was always supposed to be kind of affordable, but not, I mean, it basically became like highway fare, like cheap, cheap where, you know, if you made a couple bucks here and here, you know, you're getting rent, you know. Um, it became cheap, cheap. Um, and that's where a lot of people start thinking, oh, well, this is why, you know, this is why it ended up being a lot of people died in it because, well, I mean, anybody could say that. But like I said, the advertisement on the right side of the building originally had the word monthly. You can kind of see those letters. Um, 
on the set screen and then when the data isn't off it's kind of off to the right side as you can see so there was um, over the years it's been you know refurnished a couple times we'll kind of go through that like I said in 2017 it was um, made a, a historical landmark with historical significance um, for its architecture being an American architecture and system it has been in the middle of re remodeling and was reopened actually in December of 2021 um, as an affordable housing contract operated by the Skid Row Housing Authority so so there is that um, there is a couple things there there's a couple other things we'll talk about too where a lot of people really talk about how that in 2007 um, or 2011 so 2007 a portion of the hotel was refurbished but in 2011 a lot of people keep talking about how it was renamed as the stay on main which isn't quite correct what it really was a portion of the hotel a few floors of the hotel was renamed rebranded as stay on main with their own website their own you know their, their own entrance their own you know lobby everything else aside from the Cecil but still within the Cecil Hotel um, but they have shared facilities they shared the, the the water which will become you know important next week um, they also shared their elevator they shared the you know the stairs everything else they shared they just had separate entrances quite interesting kind of the way this all worked out um, it was one of those things because they tried to rename it and redo things but because of the skid row and all of that they couldn't just push everybody out that had been living there because some of those people lived there for a year on their monthly rates it was like 400 480 bucks a month or something like that in lieu of downtime and rent i mean yeah that that's a deal so even on skid row so we'll go into that but first before we go into all that i mean like i said it opened in 27 um right before the, the the you know the depression everything else when the depression made things if you don't know what the depression is then you, you really need to look it's a history uh, edition of that but we'll go through and we're going to talk about um the deaths you know the list of deaths in the the cecil um and it starts really quick like i said you know didn't open it opened in 27 um and in january 27 uh percy Ormond ormond shot himself in the head while inside his compartment after killing his Arkansas wife and child so yeah he killed himself so in within the first you know pretty much month of it being open someone killed themselves um, we got November 19 1931 Governor Ted Lee um, Manhattan Beach resident was found dead in his room after ingesting poison so a week prior he had checked into Cecil under the name James Willis in Chicago and went in to visit Lane September 32 Benjamin Dodit gunshot wound to the head and a maid found Dota dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head so he did not leave a note July 26 1934 so it's actually a year after my mother was born um, in late July former Army Corps medical Army Medical Corps Sergeant Bourbon was found dead in his room at the Cecil and slashed his throat with a razor Bourbon left several notes one of which said poor health is the reason for a suicide 37 Grayson Magno fell from a ninth story window her fall was broken by telephone wires which were wrapped around her body. Bourbon died at the now demolished Georgia Street Recruiting Hospital. Police were unable to determine whether Margot's death was resulting from the suicide. 
January 1938, Roy Thompson, Boston Development, and Arthur Shinko Fireman Thompson jumped from Cecil's top floor and was found on the skylight of a neighboring building. He'd been staying at the Cecil for several weeks. May 1939. We're not even 10 years into this thing. Um, after he just hit town. Uh, Navy officer Neblett was found dead in his room after he dressed in clothing. That's a lot of clothing. January 1940. Um, teacher Siegel, Dorothy Siegel, who registered under the pseudonym Evelyn Brent, suggested poison on January 10, 1940 was found at Cecil and was reported by the Washington Times to be near death. Beforehand, Siegel sent a relative to note indicating she was going to end her life. Dorothy eventually succumbed to the effects of the poison and passed away at Downey Hospital January 2005. 40. So there you go. There's another one. Um, and th- there's a lot of suicides, a lot of unquestionable suicides. Uh, this one's horrible, actually. Uh, this is horrible. Uh, but this is one. And this is one when you start talking about the paranormal, a lot of people, this next one, because a lot of the paranormal stuff um, comes from this one. Because a lot of the women that died, there's a lot of questions on whether or not the women that fell from the building were pushed or jumped. Um, and may have been jumped by the par- pushed by the paranormal and may have been this, this one here. Um, this may have been what started it. Because like they say, a lot of people who believe in the paranormal and stuff like that say tragic accidents are what started it. And people who die from suicide are ones that people, a lot of people believe are, do stay in. Um, anybody who believes in the paranormal element believes they're afraid to go to heaven or to move on to go into the light because they're either going to go to hell or they're going to be shunned in hell. Um, and most people who are very religious believe they're going to go into the, the, like one of the worst things you can do, if not the worst, is to die from suicide. So this one here um, is, this is not a suicide, this one's actually very <laughs> tragic. Uh, per, um, Dorothy Jean Purcell. Purcell was a, I believe, 19-year-old who was staying in a room with her 38-year-old boyfriend. She herself named Ben Levine. Um, she had been a, apparently been unaware that she was pregnant. She went into labor. Uh, she went into the bathroom, and she gave birth to a baby boy. She believed the baby was dead, according to her. So she threw the baby out the window, um, and her mom ran away from her and she killed it. Autopsies later said that they believed the baby was alive um, when she did that, um, and she was charged with murder, but later was uh, acquitted under uh, the reason of insanity. So, and that's one that, and that's actually one that, you know, when I was watching, we, me and my, my wife watched a lot of the, the stuff about this together. And my wife, and I, and I have to look it up, she said she's watched something, she watched another thing about this kind of thing where it's actually not I mean, it's uncommon, but not unheard of for some women to who don't realize they're pregnant, um, whether it's because of, you know, a mental issue or something like that, for whatever reason, don't realize they're pregnant, to have, to birth the baby suddenly and be like, oh my God, I didn't even know I was pregnant. That's something in their brain automatically thinks that the baby's deceased and not born, even though it's not. So it's some weird medical thing that I got to look up and I, I need more info. If there's anybody out there who's ever heard of this, like I said, it was something my, my, my wife said she has seen a couple things about. So in this case here with Purcell, um, a lot of people believe that it's the baby who is haunting that place. And some of the women later had heard the sound of the baby, and they found that the baby's always by the window. Um, and they, they say that a lot of them believe a lot of women walk over thinking that's where the baby is, and they end up going to the first window, and they end up being killed. 
retribution for what is you know the, the mother did to the baby in the previous episode and so on so it's you know um, when it comes to the paranormal stuff it's crazy so the next one that was September 1944 was Dorothy Jones um, November 1947 Robert Smith not the Robert Smith from this year um, but a different Robert Smith uh, 1947 jump from one of Cecil's seventh floor windows and died 1954, Helen Gurney, so a sensational film employee, Gurney jumped from the window of a seventh floor room and landed on top of the Cecil's Martini. So, and that's one that we, a lot of people, you know, there was a lot of reports on that one because when she hit, it was apparently a lot of people saying that she hit the Marquee and it was a big thing. Um, February 1962, Julia Francis Moore fell from the building. Moore jumped from the window of her eighth floor room of her eighth floor room and landed on the second story interior light well. Um, left no note. Among her possessions was a bus ticket from St. Louis for twenty-one cents and change and an annual annual bank check for hundred dollars or eighteen hundred dollars. Which really in nineteen sixty-two for a, a a woman, not to sound bad, to have eighteen hundred dollars in a you know, on her in an annual bank check was actually pretty good. That was a lot of money. So October 12th, 1962, Pauline Aiton uh, jumped from the window of her ninth floor room after an argument with her estranged husband, Dewey, which he was in. Uh, he left the room prior to Aiton's suicide, so they got in an argument. He left. Um, Aiton jumped out the window and landed on some poor pedestrian uh, named George Viano, 65, um, and was killed. Killed him and her. Uh, there was no witnesses. Police initially thought that they that they jumped together. So, and but what this is what's interesting about this: the way they determined that he wasn't, you know, what he they didn't jump or he did not jump, was because his hands were in his pockets when they found them, and he was still wearing his shirt. They surmised that if he had jumped, his shoes would have likely fallen off during the fall or upon impact, and his hands would not have stayed in his pockets. So I always thought that was an interesting one. You know, basically they're determining that, you know, he didn't, you know, jump because his hands were in his pockets and he was still wearing his shoes. It's very interesting. Um, June 4th, 1964. Uh, we're up to 64. Uh, hotel worker discovered Osgood retired telephone operator dead in a room um, and this was one of those ones this was a famous one um, it was Jackie um, I'm sorry Pigeon Goldie was her name Pigeon Goldie Alaska um, and then on that one what was weird is like I said you know they found her she had been raped stabbed and beaten and her room was a mess so Osgood had been well known around the area and had earned her nickname of Pigeon Goldie she fed birds to a nearby Pershing Square. Near her body was a Los Angeles Dodgers cap she always wore as a paper sack full of bird seed. Hours after her injury, there was a gentleman named Jack Jock Ellinger was seen walking through Pershing Square in a blood-stained clothing. Um, he was arrested and charged with Osgood's murder, but was later cleared of the crime and the murder remains unsolved. I could not find anything that said why he was cleared of the crime, but obviously for whatever reason, they didn't believe that he did it. So they cleared him of the crime and saw him clear. This is one, and this is one I gotta say to people, 
Um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and a lot of things. Um, 1964, just so people remember this, they didn't have DNA evidence, people. That didn't happen until the 90s. Just about everyone I listened to is, why didn't they check the DNA? Why didn't they do it? Because it was 1964, people. Didn't have that then. It's amazing how many people don't figure out that, you know, way back in the 60s, they didn't have the same technology that we do now. Um, yeah. So, sorry, just running on a rant there. Um, December 20th, 1975, there was a unidentified woman jumped from her 12th floor window and was due for second floor roof. She registered at the hotel at December 16th under the name Allison Rose and was found in room 327. So, September 1992. So, we're up into the 90s now. The body of an African-American man was found in an alley behind the Cecil. Police said he had either fallen, jumped, or been pushed from the hotel's 15th floor. So the 20 to 30-year-old male has never been identified. Um, February 19, 2013, that's Alicia Lamb. You'll get to her in a few weeks. So we'll talk about her. And the last one is uh, June 13, 2015. The body of a 28-year-old man was found outside the hotel. Some conjecture he may have committed suicide by jumping from the hotel. Although a forensic search is still currently ongoing, informing the Los Angeles Times that the cause of death is yet to be determined. And that's the last report. Reported death at the Cecil Hotel. So, um, that I have been able to find. There's a couple other ones that I found that were interesting. There was another one where I, I found reports but couldn't find a whole lot on it of people talking about someone that was in a car accident had been thrown from his truck and then pinned between the truck and um, his, his truck and the Cecil Hotel. There's a couple other ones. There's some other weird ones. So, I mean, that's just the deaths. I mean, we're over 20 minutes into this and pretty much just talking about the random facts. That's a lot of deaths in one place. But like I said, that's the, these and these are just like the suicides and the, the crazy, the, the, the insane deaths. I mean, the ones that were reported as either homicide or suicide or, or, or weird. Um, there's a lot of other ones that aren't reported and in this that were just people who lived there and just died of natural causes. Just, you know, fell asleep or overdosed or, or stuff like that. So there's a lot more deaths um, that people don't even, you know, th that aren't reported really here because they are completely, you know, completely insane. So, uh, a lot of happens. A lot of things. So, like I said, it, it's weird because I keep seeing different articles and, you know, I'm kind of going back and forth between articles on information that I'm looking at. Um, and it, it, I've seen 19 floors and 14 floors and 15 floors. So, I believe there was 14 floors that were used for residences, but I think there was a couple others that were like the lobby and some other things. So, it gets weird. Um, there's a couple other things uh, that are weird about it. One, the hotel was an inspiration for the American Horror Story Hotel, um, which I can't remember what season of American Horror Story that was, but yeah, the American Horror Hotel season, that was inspired by the Cecil. Um, you know, one of the, the former uh, managers that manager managed for about 10 years uh, said that she, while she was there, and this was in the 2000s, so she would have been maybe when the Alicia Lamb case happened. Um, 
she reported that he said that there was about 80 deaths in the hotel just in her apartment. Um, because, like I said, there was a lot of people that people don't really aren't noticed. Because they're just, they're, they're horrible. I mean, people die of natural causes. People die of overdose. People like that. Like I said, this is just a list of, of the people who died of unnatural causes. So the people died from natural causes, like I said, for, you know, 10 years of the one manager's, you know, residency there, she said that it was, you know, 80 people that changed least 80 people that died um, and that is one of the very weird things about this list is that's a lot of it's a lot of deaths that's a lot of deaths and that's one of those if you're someone who is into the paranormal and stuff like that that would explain why it is such a hotbed for paranormal activity for darkness I mean a lot of people believe it to be a very dark very very scary place. Um, I would love to go in there sometime just for just to check it out. Um, like I said, right now they just reopened it December twenty one. Um, yeah, definitely would be be amazing to go in there sometime soon. The other thing you got to look at here is the other history of the hotel. Um, like I said, two thousand seventeen, it has been named a landmark because it overlooks big things that a lot of people really point to as part of the darkness with it is also um, with the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. We, we all, we've all heard of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. We all, anybody, we have not done an episode on him, but someday I will because um, he is fascinating. But he's, he lived there. So, for a, a quick rundown on him, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker, had a grim habit of breaking homes in the middle of the night that they came across on the staircase also fond of staying at the Cecil um, he stayed there for you know a couple months during and this wasn't just like you know randomly this was during his the, the whole night stalker phase during the year or so when he was staying there um, one former Cecil resident described the hotel at the time as a lawless place, one that was so chaotic Terry Crows felt comfortable calling home. Back in the 80s, I would never go farther than the sixth floor. Uh, resident Kenneth Gibbons says in their own vanity. Usually the higher floors of the Cecil, people used to get killed up in there. Once they got a guy in the room, they would rob him, beat him up, and throw him out the window. So you couldn't even watch yourself and then come flying out of there like an ambulance. So that was a, a former resident saying what it was like. So Ramirez had a room on the 13th floor. But as far as anyone can tell, there's no proof that, that he ever brought any of his victims around. It was just a, simp a, a safe place for him to go to in between when he was in Los Angeles and just you know, go back to sleep. So, like I said, there's a couple people here. One of the, the former residents said it's one of the hotels. One of these hotels is well known for the type of crime. The Cecil Hotel, hotel is notoriously, you know, let their hair down for kinks they found off in Los Angeles Casino tour guide. The esoteric who is undergoing you know, any vanishing. One was a figure who stayed upstairs on the 13th floor, was paying $14 a night for his room, 
we like to scare coaches and make them look dumb whenever they get to come in and talk about it. So th- there's some really, like I said, one of these times I'm going to have to really go down my memory. But some of the other things that, that we post on Team FSC, so on at least one occasion he'd actually remove some of the eyes with his team trophies. And then after committing some of the most brutal murders that have happened in SoCal training ever, he would come back to the shoot team. In the middle of the night, he would be in the back alley covered in blood, taking off his gloves. So there's multiple people that have said that they, um, former residents that say they it was not unheard of to see Richard Ramirez walking through the hotel in his underwear and barefoot because he discarded his bloody clothes and came away in the back alley. So any proof of that? Not really, just a lot of people that said that it happened. So, And the hard part about the, the thing to think about is that's what kind of coach it is. Nobody batted his eyes. Nobody batted his eyes at it, you know. Um, and what, like I said, maybe we'll go down Ramirez and talk about him one day. So he was caught in 85. But, um, yeah, which is insane to think about. That there was a serial killer that just lived there. And he wasn't the only one. Not even the only one. There was another one who I had never really heard about until I started looking at this. But his name was Jack Unterweger. Inter- Unterweger. I don't know how to say it. It's all Spanish. Um, so he was an Austrian serial killer um, named Jack Unterweger. Unterweger. Oh, sorry, I can't pronounce this. Um, he was a serial killer throughout the 80s um, in Austria. He was caught, put in prison, model prisoner throughout the 80s. Um, He was basically considered living proof that no matter what deeds one committed, it was never too late to turn things around. So, after a life of crime, including sexual assault and murder, Interweger finally saw the light while serving his life sentence for that 19 se- for a 1976 killing. In prison, he even wrote an autobiography and a series of poems so beautiful that they were being taught in Austrian schools and praised by Nobel Prize winners. So, this guy's writing, this serial killer's writings were taught in Austrian schools. So, so Jack Unterweger showed the world that we need to be redeemed as sort of a supporter spot, but all that went up in smoke and shortly after his early release in 1990. So, um, there was a killing spree that happened in Austria. So, let's see here. Uh, when Jack Unterweger entered Steen Prison in 1976, his life sentence seemed to be culminating in a long history of violent crime. Born in Central Austria in 1950, Unter had a criminal record since assaulting a prosecutor at the age of 16. Since then, he spent time in prison for a number of other violent offenses. So, I wielded my steel raw among the prostitutes of Hamburg, Munich, and Moselle. He later wrote about his youth. I had enemies and conquered them for my own December 74, Unterweger killed 18-year-old Margaret Schaefer in a pattern that Unterweger would repeat again and again. He murdered Schaefer by strangling her with his own, with her own bare hands. He was soon caught, but tried to explain away his actions during the trial. He claimed that he'd seen his mother's face in Schaefer's eyes as he killed her. Uh, Unterweger thought this this would elicit sympathy because he had been abandoned by his mother in his youth. He was mistaken and spent the rest of his time in prison. But once behind bars, something profound seemed to shift inside Unterweger as he began to write. 
previously illiterate. Once they figured to learn to read and write, and soon Amy couldn't stop. She wrote poems, short stories, novels, and plays. This book, Endspacing Gutkoth, The King of Prison, won a literary prize in 1894. Once they figured autobiography, Fugifur, Purgatory, Dreaming to the Top, and The Dark Solaris also got to the Tony Movie. Soon's pr prisoner's miraculous prolificacy attracted the attention of Alfred Murray Knight. So, Peter Hewing, an Austrian historian, apologized that he was tortured by Alfred due to his autobiography, Purgatory, but his authentic and real account. He said, meanwhile, author Elfried Gelinek, who would later win the Nobel Prize for Literature, raved that Alfred Dieter's autobiography had clarity and great literary quality. So tender, Alfred Horowitz, a magazine editor, said later after visiting the Dijon prison, we decided we had to give him a pardon. Thus, an unlikely campaign was born to acknowledge Jack Alfred Dieter as both an artist and a rehabilitated man. Soon, scores of intellectuals and government officials began campaigning for his early release. As a statement signed by supporters put it, Austrian justice would be measured by the Alfred Dieter character. Many saw Unfordiger as an essential reminder that a person could rise above their circumstances. Unfordiger represented the great hope of intellectuals that though the verbalization of the problems, you can somehow get to grips with them, and instead, too be many people believe him very badly. But wherever comes disconcerting signs of both Unfordiger's growing body of work that he had completely shaken his adaptive moral environment. No theme is more poetic than the death of a beautiful woman. Unfordiger wrote at one point, still seems strange and distant and lonely, but the one day I will be close to God alone. Come Robert, I will take you by night. Nevertheless, the campaign got to get him released worked. Fifteen years into a life sentence, the minimum required by Austrian law, Jack Unterdiger was released from prison in May 1990. The prison government declared, you will never find a prisoner so well prepared for freedom. Just four months later, a prostitute was found dead in a red waterfront alleyway, close to Unterdiger's apartment. Uh, the body count rapidly increased. Seven more women were murdered in a subsequent month, each following a chillingly similar pattern. The victims were prostitutes who'd been strangled with their bras, then dumped in the river. In other words, it was an echo of Jack Unterdiger's public death. So, but the newly freed Unterdiger seemed to have gone far beyond the violence established himself as a key journalist investigating the recent string of prostitute murders. Shamelessly, Unterdiger interviewed Vienna's chief of police and penned newspaper articles about the deaths. This guy was reporting on his own murders. I mean, how, <laughs> I hate to sound bad, but how brilliant is that? I mean, it's like Peter Parker taking pictures of, uh, of freaking Spider-Man. writing on his own murders. He's investigating his own murders. Um, soon Unterdiger, which by the way, I'm getting a lot of this stuff I got from articles last time and a couple other and a couple other sites about Unterdiger. This guy, I, I don't think there's enough for a full hour on him. That's why I added him into which he is part of the CISO. I'll get to the point when he gets into the CISO here in a minute. But he, he is still fascinating. So 
Soon Antivega's reporting work also brought him to the United States. There he sought to investigate the terrible conditions suffered by American prostitutes. In Los Angeles, Antivega checked into the infamous Cecil Hotel. The LAPD even gave him a ride along with his clothes. Hmm. So he went to the Cecil. And what what is it? It's one of those things that like I said, it comes down to the Cecil Hotel. Is it because of it's a dark place and so many bad things that have happened have made it a dark place? Or is it that it attracts dark people because so many bad things have happened to report on them? Or because they feel safe there because so many bad things have happened? What is it that makes a place like the Cecil seem so comfortable for people to kind of keep watching? It just in is it the environment or is it something supernatural? Is it something paranormal? This is the, these are the ones that fascinate me because these are the questions I have. This is what I want to know. Um, so yeah, during his five weeks in Los Angeles, three prostitutes were murdered, strangled with their own bras. Wow. Isn't that insane? So he came here, went straight to the place where Richard Ramirez, where all these deaths, all these suicides, everything was happening, and stayed in that hotel. And like I said, was it because of all the bad things or was it because of its adjacent to Skid Row because along Skid Row not only was it just you know homeless people people who were down in their luck there's even reports that if you go back I mean Skid Row by itself is even a fascinating story because there's reports that even like hospitals you know if someone they would down on someone and put them like didn't really still need to be in the hospital but couldn't do anything else with them they just drive them down and drop them off at Skid Row police officers same thing if someone's out of jail but they don't have anywhere to go they just take them and dump them off on Skid Row. Um, there's a lot of crazy reports of that kind of thing, where they would just dump people off at Skid Row and just go get rid of them, um, which is so weird and so just odd that they would do this. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the thing. Is th- Do these people, were they drawn by the fact that Skid Row was there and there were so many bad things, or was there really just like a dark time over, you know, the, the, the Cecil Hotel? makes me think of Ghostbusters should have been in L.A. and not the Cecil. Uh, it's crazy. So, uh, Jack Unterweger. Uh, by this point, enough bodies had piled up that Unterweger was beginning to attract the attention of authorities on both sides of the Atlantic, in both Austria and L.A. Police in Los Angeles matched the timeline that a prostitute murders hit Unterweger's town city. Then Unterweger fled from the U.S. to Switzerland, then Paris, then back to Miami. Because everybody goes to Miami. It's nice and nice and where his story would finally begin its gathering conclusion. It was in Miami's where authorities finally caught up to with Unterweger and arrested him in February of 1992. In the end, the FBI caught him by convincing him they were reporters from Success Magazine ready to pay him 10 grand for the chance to hear his story. Unterweger took the bait, and instead of sitting down with a daring reporter, he walked into a room filled with U.S. Marshals. He'd relished the attention of the press ever since his writing career took off around town. Once released, he posed for high-fashion photo shoots and went on TV to discuss his beloved works, all while continuing to court famous artists. Ultimately, his love for painting was his undoing. After his capture, he was soon extradited back to Austria. So, And even after all this, a lot of his defenders stood by him. If he was a killer, he'd be one of the cases of the century, said Hammer. Statistically, the chance that I would known one of the cases of the century is so unlikely that therefore I can choose not to kill him. Jack Unterweger had lived in a double had lived a double life in more ways than one. 
During his trial, some women fled during the proceedings, believing each of their groups to be an innocent victim. Other women testified to his unsettling behavior. Eventually, several factors, including his lack of an alibi, led to Unterweger's conviction on June 29, 1994. That night, Unterweger hung up. One Austrian politician dryly quipped, that is what Unterweger, that it was Unterweger's best friend. So, there you go. I mean, that's one of those, again, so, according to Unterweger, before he died, I cannot bear going back into a cell. Unterweger had said after his capture, he stayed true to his word and goes back to incarceration. Following his death, even Jack Unterweger's former defenders acknowledged that they had fallen for him. At the time, I firmly believed that Unterweger was a reformed man, said Peter Humer, but now I feel I was deceived and that I am partly to blame. So, insane, right? So, like I said, eventually I'll have to go into, that was a quick overview of Unterweger. There's not a whole lot more to him. Um, he was, you know, like I said, in Austria, uh, Austria and then came over here and did the mob. So, not a, bit, not a huge story on Unterweger, but something that I'd never heard of. So, it's kind of cool to, to see that. Um, like I said, there's just so much more to this hotel. There's so much more of the, you know, the history, the the paranormal side. Um, we'll get more into it when I go into the Elisa Lamb in two weeks. Um, Elisa Lamb is a very fascinating one. I'm sure you've all seen it. There's a Netflix documentary on it right now. Um, I'll go into it. I'll let you all know my thoughts on it. Um, I've been researching, and, and it was really tough on for me on this one because I really wanted to do, do the Elisa Lamb, but then once I really started, ed, uh, you know, investigating it and researching and everything else there was just so much other things on the Cecil that I, I felt like I had to cover the Cecil Hotel first and let everyone have a background on this amazing beautiful hotel if you have a chance go look up in the video of this hotel it is gorgeous um, it is beautiful it has been redone again and like I said it reopened in December 21 um, and it's it's still a low income still down in, in Skid Row, um, but the hard part for me, like I said, is I really feel that there are a lot of crazy things that happen. I mean, we talked about Lisa Lamb, we'll go into some of those, but the hard part of a lot of this is a lot of people believe that there's a lot of paranormal, but it, it does come down to that argument of, is all of this paranormal or all of it just the fact that it's so close to row is it just a matter of numbers i mean there's just so many people from skid row that are right there um yeah I, i'd definitely love to go down there definitely love to get some pictures and shoot some pretty cool videos of it um it's got a huge re you know reputation for all sorts of you know violence and all that kind of stuff like i said there's a whole um elisa lamb that we will go into quite a bit on the next my next time here we will deep go deep into that um yeah so i hope you enjoyed this this is a little bit shorter episode than normal but like i said i definitely wanted to go in and talk about you know everything that went on with it so and like i said um the cecil hotel did close down in 2014 hotelier richard Boyne bought the hotel for 30 mil shut shut it down for complete renovation in 2017 um it was supposed to open but with a gym, lounge, and rooftop pool. Um, but I don't think it had the rooftop pool. I think it may have three elements, possibly. Um, and it was delayed to 
because of COVID-19. But like I said, it opened in December 21, reopened. It is now, you know, a historical building. It's it's very interesting place. Like I said, go look at the videos. It's really cool um, to live there. Smith facility, um, like I said, which was acquired by Simon Barron Development, is operated by the Skidrow Housing Trust. Includes secured entry, a community kitchen, laundry facility, recreation room, on-site case management services provided by, you know, SHRT, health and social services, and people are eligible for future hotel units if they make between 30 and 60% of their area median income, but most units are customized for people making $30 to $50,000. So it's very interesting, you know, very neat place. Um, I would love to go to someday. And two weeks, like I said, we will talk about Elisa Land. So if you're expecting Elisa Land in this one, not yet. We will get to Elisa Land. I just wanted to build on the history because I felt like it wasn't doing Elisa justice. And as I talked about that, it's a little bit disappointing. So I'm going to be going down into it and talk about some of the, the, the some of the theories that come down with Elisa Land when it comes to the paranormal, when it comes to all that stuff, any other paranormal thoughts, um, the darkness of this hotel, of this building, really come down to all the other things that are happening there, all those ghosts, you know, all the acts of energy, then you got all the like natural things, like we didn't even ask, um, like I said, the, the, the one lady said it was 20 years, she knew of Odin's, you know, just natural things, can you imagine how many were there, because it's what, open, started building in 1924, first, first dust was in 1927, almost 100 year history, can you imagine how many people got more natural deaths? 700 rooms. And some of those people would stay there for years. It's an amazing place. Um, very interesting. Very fascinating. Um, like I said, very gorgeous. But once you get past the lobby, from everything I've heard, um, it's gorgeous till you get past the lobby. And then it's like the zoom and view and all that. But um, And when you go up the stairs, it starts to get very tame. And it gives you a little background of the lobby. Um, yeah, so thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. Let me know what else you want to hear. Um, and stay tuned for uh, next, on Sunday, me and Big D have a fun show for you um, that, that we got planned. And in two weeks, I will be back. I will talk about Elisa Land. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for everyone loving the show. Um, thank you to Twin Radio Network for, for having us on there and their network and sharing us and, and just being amazing. So, yes, thank you all. And hopefully I will uh, see you all and talk to you all soon. 